Hi, welcome to the Coaching Manual podcast. I'm Pavel Williams, I'm the editor at thecoachingmanual.com and this week I'm talking to Edu Rubio who's the head coach at a professional academy and who's worked his way up from a level one skills coach all the way through to a pro license uh, within a relatively short time span. What's interesting about Edu is that he's come to the UK and brought his kind of understanding of the Spanish game and youth development over there and applied it to a very English model of development and he's done extremely well at it. So it's a fascinating conversation. It touches upon what are the skills required to be successful at kind of every level of the game from level one to UEFA B, UEFA A and all the way through to the pro license and ultimately what are the skills that he's currently developing which are around man management, game understanding and some of the sort of higher level skills which we don't always get to dig into in, in depth. So it's a really interesting conversation. Edu's a lovely guy and he's full of knowledge so it's well worth a listen. Enjoy. Just talk to me about your journey, how you ended up ultimately as a pro licensed coach and what your journey introduction in football as a player was and how yeah. it's coaching and to today. So I guess kind of a short version of a life story. So yeah, you okay, well, sure. Uh, your past. Uh, do you know I'm a Spanish, yeah? I know, short is a... I know your, act, your English accent is so good though. Um, okay, let's, um, so basically my journey as a coach started um, when I was three or four years old. Um, I had a chance to go and uh, obviously get involved in football. Over there in Spain, uh, when you are yeah, three, four, five years old, you, you already go into a club and then futsal club as well. Okay. And, 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 and obviously I loved it as a, as a, as a kid. And since then I was quite lucky to go into good academies. So when I say good academies, I mean academies where all the coaches were really forward thinking coaches. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky to be coached by um, people who had played the game, but also by people who came from a sports science background, people who were teachers, people who really understood how to um, obviously take the whole environment. And so it was really, it was really good when I was a kid. Um, I went to Lleida Academy, and then I had the chance to play um, a little bit in Valencia as well. Mm-hmm. But then um, I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to play uh, like Championship or Premier League. Um, probably my level was like League Two. Sure, yeah. So how old were you when you realised that? So I was probably um, 16, 17. I okay, had just yeah. gone to Valencia, and I realised that yes, I could probably make a living out of football as a player, but it would be only to pay the bills, sure. and it wouldn't be massive. And and I could have obviously gone over and tried to you know explore the idea of you know becoming an, a professional in League Two, and then maybe you never know, maybe you can break into the League One. And it's something that I would definitely encourage to anyone because that could be the case. And there are loads of examples. But um, luckily or unluckily, <laughs> I was very academic as well. And I had a passion for a uh, sports science degree. Mm-hmm. And in Spain, the sports science degree is a bit different. Um, it used to be, now it's four years, but it used to be five years. Okay. And it used to be much more about coaching and management. So, and, and it would be 50% theory, 50% practical. Okay. So you would be doing football, rugby, swimming, everything. Okay. So it was really good. And it was obviously on the back of uh, Barcelona 92. So uh, the Olympics really brought a different sort of environment into the country. Yeah, and it was quite vibrant and, and it was really good. So um, even though obviously I went to uni in 2000, I mean, still, you know, the, the, the effect of the Olympics. infrastructure and they've made sport a priority. Absolutely. So, so in that decade of the 90s and then the, dec- the first decade of the uh, 2000, it, w- it was really vibrant and really good. 
So I decided to go to university, and obviously I had to drop my football, so I couldn't commit to um, to go five days a week training and then playing the games. And so I had to make a decision, and I don't regret it at all because I, I mean I don't I don't hide you know the fact that I wasn't an amazing player, and I don't have any issue with that. But I thought I was very a, a good, cl clever player. I was always the captain. I was always one who would be. Um, playing manager and trying to talk to the coach about the tactics and trying to read different things about how to win the game in a different element. So that was really good. So once I went to uni, I decided obviously I wanted to do football and I did swimming as well. I did a degree, you had to specialize in two different things. And then when I was at uni, obviously that was really good because with that degree I had um, great teachers about sociology, about um, how to work the environment, sure. uh, psychology, and, and, and I'm a great believer of those things into football. So they taught me how to coach, how to teach, mm -hmm. and, and I believe that a coach has to be obviously a teacher as well. Sure, yeah. And so that was really, really good. So once I did that, I said, well, now I have to obviously go through the uh, qualifications. But the formal coaching badges. Exactly, the formal yeah. coaching badges. Sure. But um, funny enough, I was given a grant from the Spanish government to finish off my degree in England. So even though I couldn't even say hello, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go there because it was based on merits, um, on um, obviously the subjects, but rather than checking whether you could speak the language. And that's probably Spain for you. I mean, that's the way we do things there at times. So, um, so I said, yeah, it doesn't matter if I waste six months. I'm going to go there and see what happens. And I loved it. I mean, I was really lucky. I mean, I passed all the subjects and all cool. everything um, because obviously I got some help from <laughs> my classmates. But it was really good. Um, so I decided to stay another six months, and then I finished off my degree here in London. Okay. And then having done that, then I thought, well, why not? I'm, I'm going to stay a bit longer and then learn the language and have an international experience mm -hmm. and I learn about British football uh, because I always had that passion about you know and the football in, in England as well and. And yeah, I got a job in a grassroots club, mm -hmm. and I was first kind of managing the, the club, so trying to obviously arrange fixtures and sure. you know getting some structure within the coaching, employing some part-time coaches, um, and that was really, really, really good. And one day, someone from the FA came there, um, they did a session there, and then they saw one of my sessions, and well, one thing to another, I had a chance then to apply for a job at the FA. And, I got into the FA. And that was a, that was a skills coach? And that was a skills sure. coach. So um, I worked for the FA, I worked for the FA like, I think it was three and a half years. Okay. Um, I was really good. I mean, being at the FA, I had the chance to have access to, obviously, all the learning, all the CPD, all the qualifications. So I started from zero. I mean, even though I was already um, B licensed in Spain, um, back then they wouldn't combine the B license in Spain and here, that UEFA hadn't done all the accreditations there, and it was a bit more difficult to, sure, to yeah, combine one or another. Yeah. So I started, I did level one, level two, and then obviously B license with FA. And then just when I was about to leave the FA, going into MK Dons, which was my first experience in a professional club in England, because I had already previously worked in Valencia Academy yeah. when I was at uni. Um, I did the under 13s, 14s there. Um, then obviously I, I decided to go and do the, the um, UFA. 
So I did the UFA, and then after that, luckily I passed and everything. And then four years later, which is now, being now at the Nike Academy and having gone through um, MK Dons, then Chelsea Academy, which was a great experience as well, I learned a lot at Chelsea. Then obviously at the Nike Academy now, I went into that point where, well, I would like to progress, I would like to go farther, I would like to try to get more knowledge. So it wasn't just to collect uh, batches, it wasn't, I've never been one of those who's been rushing to try to get uh, pro license because then people are going to respect me. I think people will respect you for what you do on the pitch and people will respect you for your behaviours and how you, you, know, you treat people, mm -hmm. how you develop players mm -hmm. and, and what you do in the, in the club and what you do with the team. So qualifications as such, they are important of course, uh, but I don't think they are crucial. But still I thought, well, I have to get my qualifications because I want to go into those environments and I want to learn and yeah. I want to see you know, well, whether I'm capable of doing I'm a firm believer of thinking, um, obviously stretching, challenging yourself. Yeah. I also think there's a huge amount of consolidation required. So Absolutely. Once, if you've, even if you've just done your level one qualification, mm -hmm. I don't think you need to rush into necessarily level two because yeah. you just need to process, you need to practice, you need yeah. to, almost like if you do your driving test, you pass your driving test almost, yeah. that's the best you ever drive because you yeah. kind of then bad habits slip in, drop in. Yeah. So I think it makes sense to have a little bit of time between courses yeah. and look at courses from other providers or look at other resources and yeah. kind of just add other things to your coaching before you look straight onto the next thing on the pathway. Exactly. That seems to make sense. Uh, and also because the learning doesn't, doesn't necessarily happen in a classroom. I mean, it could be just by going and observing a coach, sure. by obviously talking to someone, by reading some papers, by reading a book, by just watching uh, as much football as you can on telly, yeah, by going to the stadium and just living football, which is different than watching it. Yeah. So it could be anywhere. So, so yeah, I agree with you. Obviously, yeah, batches are very important if you're going to make a career out of coaching. Mm -hmm. However, if you don't have that aim or that goal, then you can still learn about football in, in different environments. Absolutely. Um, but the pro license now, this, um, obviously I've just come back from the pro license, and that was really good. I mean, that, that was really exciting. I mean, um, it's, it's different over there. And, um, I did it in Spain because um, I was going to apply for the, for the one in, at the FA. And to be fair, I wanted to. That was one of my my dreams as well because I had done level one to B and then A license in England so I thought oh, it would be quite cool to finish it here but obviously over here I had to apply and probably I would have gone through the waiting list and they would have probably you know got all the people first because yeah. there were all the kind of criteria which is fine oh. I don't have an issue with that and I was going to apply for the, Spani for the one at the Spanish FA but I didn't have to because uh, the sporting director funny enough um, a couple of years ago, came to England to do a few courses and a few things. He saw a few of my coaching sessions and then he said, I would like to invite you to the pro license. If you wanted to come, there's no issues. I mean, I really, wanna, I really want you to, to go there. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> so obviously, that's why I decided to go to Spain. So it wasn't because I didn't want to do it in England, uh, because I love it here. And I think the CBD here is really good. Mm -hmm. And the, the coaching batches are really good as well. So it was just one of those where, well, over there, I can do it, and over here, yeah, I cannot do it yet. So it's, it's as simple as that. For a lot of podcast listeners especially, yeah. will be grassroots coaches, and they maybe have done a level yeah. one or um, yeah. a youth module, but yeah. they might want to go and do either the level two, if that's the next step, or they might yeah. wonder about the USB. Yeah. Can we just take a few minutes and just talk about what the kind of learning objectives are for the courses as you yeah. move up through the levels, and, and how you feel they uh, where, where they kind of lie in terms of 
when you're ready to take that course as a coach. So yeah. to start with a level one, obviously it's mandatory if you're going to work in a charter standard yeah. club here in England. Yeah. I know there's equivalent in should be, yeah, the US. So there should be a minimum yeah. required qualification. It's, yeah. it's, you know, coaching probably doesn't get the respect it deserves. I think. Yeah. But just talk about some of the key things within the, the level one and some of the real introductions to coaching that you get and why they're important. Yeah, obviously, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, level one, uh, if you want to be in coaching, you have to take a a batch. I mean, that that's 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 really important because obviously, um, when you go into one of those courses, you know, the FA tutors they're going to teach you um, how to create a good environment. They're going to give you some ideas and some insights of how to coach, and and it's really powerful. I mean, people don't really see how powerful you can, you know, and and how influential you can be to those players um, in that club. So. Some people, you know, make it like, oh, well, it's that, it doesn't matter. It's just a Saturday uh, team. And for me, it wouldn't be that case. I mean, it's very important uh, for them. Probably that's the most exciting day of the week. So it has to be, um, it has to be mandatory. And, and the level one, I would say that probably is more about knowing yourself as a coach. So if I was going to go into a level one now, uh, my, my requirements would be like, oh, what can I do to obviously improve myself as a coach? What kind of things do I have to do and I shouldn't be doing? And what kind of, thing, what kind of things I can do to facilitate to those players the best learning environment? Because sometimes it's not just about going there and putting a great session. It's about whether you can really touch you know, um, some of that kind of football for those players, whether you can do something which is going to inspire them, whether you're going to do something which, uh, at the end of the day, they're going to go back to, um, to school, they're going to go back to the mates, to the um, families, and they're going to go like, wow, I love football. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're in a grassroots environment, um, number one priority should be that the players really love football. And having fun is very important and enjoy it, but the most important is they fell in love with the, with the sport. Then obviously that would be in terms of psychologically and socially. Yeah. Then in terms of the technical and tactical understanding is pretty much about how to set up simple drills where obviously the players can start learning the skills of the game and then obviously whether they can relate that into the tactics of the game and if possible they shouldn't be very very committed into whether they win or they lose I mean that's not the most important thing yet mm -hmm. um, of course once they get into a professional level the winning is really important I'm one of those who will always praise for the winning you know, in a professional environment. Of course, yeah. Otherwise, why you are there? I mean, yeah, of you are there to win it, and no one goes into a game thinking, well, I don't really mind, yeah. because that shouldn't be the spirit. Yeah. However, it's not winning at all costs. And obviously, when you are learning, when you are a young player, when you are in a grassroots club, it's more about whether you can get loads of things into your toolbox, whether you can learn loads of different things. So then when you get go into the professional level, if you're lucky enough, or if that's your desire, mm -hmm. then you've got some ideas, and then you've got some resources. Otherwise, then what it happens is that some of them go into the professional level and there isn't that kind of thing. Yeah. But as a coach, definitely level one is all about um, commitment to make things fun and enjoyable for the players, commitment to understand your limits as a coach. Therefore, then when you go into the session, you really think about how you can improve different things, how you can set up a right environment, whether you can make sure that the boys and the girls are going to be happy to go back into that environment the, ne the next day and whether you encourage them to practice, whether you encourage them to really love the game. That's what I would do in level one. You touched on the psychological and social and mm -hmm. technical, and for, for me, the biggest thing that I picked up on the early courses was actually that football is so much more than just kind of X's and O's or 
tactics mm-hmm. or even to some extent skills. There's a lot more to do it, and obviously it's called sort of long-term player development. But yep. I think that really helps clarify when it's about winning and when it's about other aspects yep. of the game are important. And almost if you win every game at nine or ten years old, there's pretty much zero guarantee you're going to win games at 15, 16 yep. anyway. And I think taking that broader view yep. was probably the, the biggest thing for me in terms of how I approach things and reflect on it. Yep. So I think. To answer the question almost that way around, we started yeah. with the social and the psychological. Yeah, reflects I think some of the the lessons almost that you'd be expected to pick up on yeah. those courses. Well, I, I, and I think that's crucial because yeah. um, football is a reflection of society. So, so of course, uh, psychology and, and sociology is going to be very very important in football. Let's talk about level two then, because it gets yeah. uh, perhaps a little bit more involved once you do level two. The yeah. course takes a little bit longer. Yeah. What are some of the things above and beyond the level one that are added in the yeah. level two, and why is it useful for a coach to kind of go on and take that next level? So um, I think the, the the biggest step between level one and level two is probably that level two now it starts to be more about how we coach. So whether you have an understanding of um, how you you can do some practices which are going to be related to obviously the game and whether you're going to then link those practices with individual needs which I think it's it's the art of coaching um, sure. so um, th- that's the main difference between level one and level two so as we said level one is more about uh, setting up the environment making sure that the players are going to fall in love with the game and then level two would be more like well now I'm starting to be interested as a coach of how to coach the game so let's see where I can pick up some ideas to um, make my practices more relevant, where I can get more ideas to make sure that when I do the practices, they are not just random practices, but they are practices which are going to have um, some key elements which will help each individual in the group. So that's probably the main difference between level one and level two. And in terms of how you coach and how you maybe have uh, perhaps a slightly bigger influence on the players, yeah, we're talking about intervention strategies, right? We're yes. talking about how do we get involved and. What are some of the big key things you learned as you were working for moving about? Did you find that when you began you maybe talked too much or too little? Yeah. And how did you find that balance as you went through the coaching journey? Yeah, definitely. I mean, probably um, one of the common mistakes as a coach is that you end up talking a lot. And obviously it's, it's about them practicing rather than you telling. And, and probably after one minute, most of them are like, well, I'm not listening to you anymore. So that, that's not very effective. So sometimes it's obviously how you find your strategies to uh, be very like concise at 30 seconds, key factors, key elements, and there we are. And then we'll go and we'll coach. So that's something very important as a coach. So yeah, that's something that obviously takes time though. At the beginning, you take four or five minutes to explain anything. But I think that as a coach, what you have to do sometimes is when you are obviously planning and preparing is so important. That when you are planning and preparing your practice and your session, then is when you have to go through your mind, well, how would I explain this? What are the relevant key factors? What are the objectives? So then when you go on the pitch, you're going to go very concise. You're going to go, well, I know my key factors. I know my objectives. I'm going to say this and this over. And, and then obviously it becomes more effective. Now, if you haven't done that plan and preparation before, then you go on the pitch and it's like, oop, what am I saying now? So obviously that's one of the main things. Plan, prepare, and then understanding your the audience, so understanding your group as well. So if I know that, those three or four uh, don't really pay attention at times. So are there more visual learners? Are there more kinesthetic learners? So do I have to more do I have to do demonstrations more than anything else? So there are different obviously coaching strategies and teaching strategies that can help you as a coach. Sure. So obviously that's something that the coach has to understand as well. 
But again, I, I, I'm a great believer of just being very emotional intelligent. So just go into your session and understand your group. Mm -hmm. So if it's one of those groups that do pay attention, then take 30 extra seconds. It's not a problem if you talk for another 30 seconds. However, if, if it is one of those groups that they really need to go into it very quickly, don't even, not, don't even say anything. Just um, set up the practice, let them experience everything, let them do it, and then five, 10 minutes into the practice, then you stop and you ask relevant questions. And I think the questioning is probably the key factor. Okay. The questioning is probably the most difficult coaching strategy. So how am I going to ask a question which is going to be related to if your um, coaching strategy or teaching strategy is guided discovery? So mm -hmm. how am I going to obviously kind of reveal this without saying it? So those the question for me is it's really important. Is how you're going to obviously bring everything alive. And um, so when you're planning a practice, you, will you put thought into the specific questions that you'll ask? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's funny how, how when you start as a coach, you really work on the practice as how is it going to look, how am I going to put the cone, how, whether I'm going to be using this color or this other thing. And I don't think that's so relevant. I think the most relevant thing is how am I going to talk to them? How am I going to ask the questions? When am I going to ask the questions? How am I going to ask those questions? Um, am I going to do it in a group? Am I going to do it individually? Am I going to do it in between? Am I going to do it before the session, after the session? I think that's really the art of coaching. Yeah. I mean, you can go to any club and probably someone who, you know, has been taking half an hour to think about this, the practice will be able to do a decent practice. I mean, will be able to put up their nice practice, set up something, but that's something that someone who is just going to replicate ideas from someone else. Yeah. And, and that wouldn't be coaching from my understanding. That would be just someone who goes there and says, you know what, I've seen this, whatever, and I'm just going to, but that's not coaching. Coaching is, no, I've been thinking about um, this thing about the game and I want to practice this. I'm just going to do a simple setup, but what I'm going to do is coaching. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to find coaching strategies like the questioning, like the um, key factors, like coaching strategies such as am I going to work in groups, am I going to work individually, and then making sure that that practice is relevant to everyone. Mm -hmm. So obviously if we are doing some defending, still it will be relevant for the attackers because they will have to play against the defenders. But obviously for them, the key factors will be different. Therefore we have to obviously make sure that they, they understand the key factors as well. So for me, that would be a massive step between um, level two probably and now B license. Going on a little bit higher. Going into I, the B license. I, I agree with you so much and that's probably one of the challenges or maybe uh, myths almost with the coaching yeah. manual is that we are providing sessions really. Yeah. Uh, if you remember the coaching manual, you have access to all these great sessions yeah, predominantly from Southampton. Yeah. And the reason they're on video is not because you can copy what the drill looks like. That's easy and it's very exactly. important. Yeah. It's so you can look at how, say, how Terry interacts with the players or yeah. how Anthony sets up a little picture for the players yeah. to look at. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the key message. And it's very subtle, but we're not providing drills for people to copy because, as you said, that's easy. You don't even need that many of them. You don't no. need hundreds and hundreds of drills. No. What you need to do is to understand what's the problem that yeah. maybe the players are facing and how you address that. Yeah. And it's kind of so, but looking at great coaches' work, that's the thing I've started to completely change where I personally make notes. Yeah. And to try and sway maybe the coaches who use our service to don't look so much at the self. Look at how 
Why did he interact? How did he exactly. do it? Which players is he talking to? Is it all the players or is it certain ones? Why yeah. the players? And it becomes maybe more complicated. It's harder work because there's more planning involved. Yeah. But sessions run so much more smoothly once you kind of apply that. And you suddenly feel like, oh, okay, I'm getting the hang of this coaching thing just a little bit because exactly. you haven't got the player who messes about every single week messing yeah. about. You've engaged him with something yeah. like that. And, and also remember that if that player is messing about, probably it's your fault. Great. So Great. It's, it's, it's you that you haven't found that your strategy to click with that player, making sure that that player uh, obviously does a good session. Yeah, sure. Um, because otherwise, if that player wouldn't like football or wouldn't want to be there, probably he wouldn't be there or she wouldn't be there. I'm sure that's valuable so, for you when you work now in the professional game or at the higher level. Yeah. The players, they want to be there, they should want to be there, they should be motivated. But I guess you've got experience where players maybe aren't as motivated. So yeah. some of those behaviour strategies maybe. Do yeah. they still come in handy even at this level? Or do you I, I, absolutely. Things? I mean, absolutely. Motivation, self-esteem, all those things are so important. Yeah. So that doesn't change. I mean, the, the football, uh, the game is still the game. So it doesn't matter whether it's played in grassroots on a Sunday evening on a pitch which is not the best one or whether it happens at Wembley. I mean, that's, that is still football. And we are still people who go there, coach or play football or referee or whatever is your role. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm a great believer that that doesn't really matter. I mean, probably the main difference between grassroots and the professional level is the money involved, is whether you are full-time, whether, you know, all those kind of things. So it's more that than, than actually the difference of football because the, the game is still with the same principles of the game and it is still played by people who love the game and it's still co- um, coached by people who really want to you know, take a good session and, and, yeah. and provide a good session for those people who are there um, trying to play the game. Yeah. So that, that wouldn't be so relevant. You touched on some of the gaps uh, as you lead in towards the UAB. There's mm-hmm. um, still very many of the elements of social and psychological Mm-hmm. Is the assumption correct in saying that it becomes more technical, you deal with more players at a time, you deal with units of players rather yep. than individual players as you move into the way for B? And, and if so, was that a challenge for you or did you find that came quite naturally? Yeah, well I, I suppose I mean, it was challenging because when you are learning there is always a challenge and if, and if you were not challenged probably you wouldn't be learning. So um, that's for sure, it was challenging. It's always challenging when you have the the ambition to, to get better and to, to do better in whatever you do in life. So that's for sure. However, I think there is a natural progression as well. I think I think life is probably, uh, I don't know, more knowledgeable than, than yourself as such. I mean, you, you know when you are ready for the next step. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you are, you are taking the B license and then you go into the A license, um, of course, there is more technical things. There is more understanding of the game. But there is also more management of um, players who are more capable of doing things that probably you haven't seen before. Therefore, how am I going to address this? How am I going to challenge them in a different way? How am I going to obviously cater for their needs? Because obviously now their needs are probably greater than the needs that um, the players that I was coaching five years ago. Therefore, my uh, understanding and my knowledge as a coach has to be greater as well to compensate that obviously necessity that those players have now. So um, there is a bigger step between B and A license in terms of uh, obviously the technical element, yeah, sure. there's a bigger step in terms of the tactics, there's a, be, a bigger step in terms of the um, game management and game understanding and when to do things and how to do things and obviously the practices have to be more um, accurate in terms of the pictures that you're trying to provide. So if I'm working about uh, relationships between the fullback and the winger, so obviously you have to see five, six, seven different scenarios and yeah, sure. those scenarios have to be obviously um, in a, in, a, in a sequence which is logical 
and obviously you have to uh, set up the practice in a way that it's going to allow you to bring those things alive in a logical scenario, in a logical sequences. So obviously it becomes more challenging because you are now trying to refine and trying to go to much more detail. And I think the detail is the main difference. So, so it gets more specific Absolutely. Well. Yeah. The, the practice will be probably the same, but it's whether obviously you are working now on, wow, now it's not just about whether that fullback can do this or this other, now it's whether he can do three, five, six, seven more things, which obviously, you know, um, when you were level one, level two, and still a B license, probably you couldn't see yourself. So that, that would be the main difference, would be the detail involved in every action, and it would be those specifics in terms of game understanding and game management. So addressing more scenarios, and, and I guess that's where decision making comes into play. So you, Absolutely. You have to be able to maybe anticipate, perhaps at early levels it might be, let's do this, this is our yeah. strategy, and now it could be, if this, then this, if yeah. this, then this. Well, decision making is involved in anything you do, and even when you are level one, I mean, yeah. as a coach, and even when you are coaching under sevens, I mean, decision making is so important. It will always be there in anything we do in life. And obviously football is part of, as I said before, I mean, it's part of your life. And so, so yeah, I mean, decision-making will be always there. The difference probably is whether, whether you have the knowledge and the tools then to cater for that decision-making and, and, and to provide that environment which will allow them to have a better decision-making process and will allow them to have more options to decide, therefore more challenges, therefore a better way of learning. So that's, that's, that's the main difference because, again, principles of the game, the game itself and the decision-making process will never change. That's always there. That's, what, that's the beauty of the game. That's what the game provides. But obviously you as a coach and them as players have, will have to be learning. There is a learning process sure. which, yeah, when you go into, into the B and then the A, um, it's more about, wow, now it's refining those details. It's, sure. it's whether you can find those, those triggers is whether you can yeah, provide that decision making in a different level, in a different... Now, the game is going to be played more quickly. Um, obviously, the opposition are going to be better prepared, so they're going to expose you in a different way. Um, so, obviously, those things have to be taken into account. Sure. So, in those instances where you maybe have to catch up with a very talented player and overtake them, or you need to fill in the gaps in your understanding of the game. Yeah. How, how did you address that? How did you improve your overall knowledge and understanding of the game? As a coach? As a coach, yeah. Yeah, I mean, same. I mean, same as when you are level one, level two, level three. So keep going into uh, observing practices from other peers, people who in, in other clubs. Um, and not to copy. So make sure that when you go there, you go with with an open mind to see where they can learn loads, see where they can see different things that they do, different strategies. but with the idea of incorporating those things into your own philosophy and into your own identity as a coach. When you were going to go and observe a session for a coach, would you prepare for that? Would you have things in your mind that you were specifically looking for? Would you pl almost plan the questions you were going to ask that Yeah, coach? that's a good question. Well, depending. Obviously, if I do know that coach and if I do know, uh, I don't know, like someone is recommending me to go and see that coach because sure. of this and this over, then probably, yes, I prepare myself like, wow, is he going to do this and this and this things that this other friend is, 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 is talk about. But if I just go into a session without really knowing who's going to be taking that session, then now I'll go with a very open mind mm -hmm. and just go see and, and, and observe. But there's a difference between see and observe. Yes. Obviously, see the session will be that coach that goes there and he's like, oh, he's put three cones there and he's, 
and observing would be why has he put those three cones there? Why is he talking to this player and not this other? Why is he um, raising his voice when he's doing the defending side and he's talking in a different manner with a different tone when he's doing the attacking side? So the communication levels and obviously uh, why is he, I don't know, doing the practice in that specific uh, part of the pitch rather than in other? Is it because then he can provide more uh, different scenarios and pictures which will be more relevant and probably more suitable and similar to the game, to the 11 v 11, even though that's a small-sided game. So for me, it's, it's going there and asking yourself why that person is doing all those things and then trying to think about different ideas. And then if you have a chance, obviously, to talk to that coach at the end of the session, sure. that would be very useful sure. because then he can, or she can provide you with some feedback and then it's for you to go home and consolidate and think, wow, they did this and this other. I agree with this, I disagree with that, I would like to do this. But it's not going down, it's like, yeah, I'm going to copy everything, I'm going to do all the practices. Or oh, now I've got a thousand practices, now I can coach. Because you don't really need a thousand, and probably 900 of those thousand won't be very relevant to your philosophies as a coach. Yeah. So it's also quite important to have your own identity and your own philosophy. What do I want? How do I see football? What are my philosophies as a coach? How do I want my team to play? How do I want my fullback to defend and to attack? How do I want my... And then once you ask yourself all those questions and then you have a slight idea, then it's when you go and observe and see whether you can get some ideas to add into your philosophy and identity rather than just go there and copy. That leads me to my next kind of set of questions, really. I just want to yeah. talk about who are some of your role models as coaches and some okay. people who influenced you the most as you were working your way through your coaching career so far? Yeah, I mean, definitely one, one of them would be Pep Guardiola. Um, I, I was quite lucky to obviously go to Barcelona and observe some of his sessions and, and absolutely, I mean, I, I, I would love it. And I would love it because of what I've just said. Uh, practices, quite similar to anything that any other manager may do. Sure. So nothing, you know, nothing amazing in terms of the practice itself. But the amazing bit was how he talks to the players, how he um, questions, um, how he makes the question to the player, how he um, understands the, the environment that he is in. Uh, those things are, for me, that, that are the most relevant things as a manager. What were some of the characteristics of the way that Guardiola would interact with his players that you were so impressed by? So, so basically, um, there, are, there are some managers there that they, they probably think that gaining respect is about creating that fear factor. So I've got the chance to play you on Sunday or leave you on the bench, so I'm going to play with that. And sometimes you have to do that. I'm not saying that's wrong with that. But for me, it's more important about uh, making sure that the player understands that you are there uh, to win the game with him, mm -hmm. that you are there because you value what they do, because you are there because it is important to you. You are there because you care. You are there because you are professional and you want to win as many titles as you can and you want to help them win and we have to do it together and we have to do it as a team because that will probably take us farther than if we just walk by ourselves. But, and that's probably one of the main things that um, he would have. Mm -hmm. He would have that power to encourage people to work as a team. He would have that power to talk one on um, ones, he would have that power to influence people. When you um, moved on to the pro license, yeah. your mind must inevitably just turn to okay, I, if I'm going to be the manager of a team, and just talk to kind of 
listeners about the difference in your mind between the manager yeah. versus even the head coach or a coach role within yeah. a club. What are the extra responsibilities that are required to yeah. be a good, effective manager? Yeah. Obviously now I may have to talk about uh, what I believe and obviously what I see from other people because obviously I haven't been there yet. So um, I haven't experienced that role and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't make an attempt to talk like if I were the manager when I'm not. And, and obviously right. you have to respect, you know, those people who are there and, you know, they are leading the way and, and we are just behind trying to help and trying to get where they are. So we respect everyone with, uh, um, for that matter. But um, just to another question, yeah, I would definitely say that probably the main difference is that the manager would be that person that obviously has to see the whole thing, has to see, um, has to understand about the club. So it's not just about the team, it's also about the structure of the club. It's also how we're going to make the signings, how we're going to spend the money, how we're going to work the academy, how we're going to structure things for the long term. Mm -hmm. So, and, and obviously to, to, to leave a legacy in the club. So it's the, the, the overall picture. And probably the head coach can focus more on the team. So how we're going to do as a team, long term as well, sure. doesn't have to be short term at all, but it's more about the team and the squad and probably, you know, the relationship between that team and the under-21s and the academy, of course, because I'm a great believer of the academy, but probably doesn't need to see the whole picture of the club because probably that person will be under technical director or sporting director mm -hmm. who will have the responsibilities to probably see the whole thing as a club. So that would be probably the main difference between a head coach and a manager, and there will be the responsibilities the way I see it. Oftentimes as a manager, you go into a club and there's, there's already legacy there. There's perhaps yeah. momentum in a certain direction. You may yeah. not even agree with that direction. Yeah. Do you think it's possible to go in with a very firm philosophy around playing style and implement that straight away? Or do you feel like you have to look at and assess the players that you have at your disposal and develop a system around that? So would you go with playing style first or players first? Yeah, uh, I think there is another question hidden between that question, okay. which is, um, whether you could go somewhere where, where you don't really believe in what they do. Sure. And, and I, I'm, I'm a bit a purist with those things. I think it's quite important that you go into a place where you believe on what they do or they are trying to do. Yeah. Maybe they're not doing it yet, but they are obviously going towards that objective. Sure. Um, if you don't believe in what you, in what you do, it's quite, quite difficult to, to be successful. And, and obviously it's quite difficult for the club to give you the job as well, because Obviously, if the club is made the, the idea of the recruitment, sure. probably they won't really recruit you yeah, because sure. they will understand that you don't believe in those. So, but having said that, um, no, I think you have to, when, when you are in, in, in an environment where the winning is, is mandatory and you have to obviously go there to win, of course you, you want to influence the way of playing, of course you want to go there with a philosophy, of course. Um, we understand having obviously answered the previous hidden question there, <laughs> that you know, the technical director, the chairman, whoever, you know, um, is in the club, have given you the direction of this is what we want to do and this is what we are working towards. And then obviously you are there to help and facilitate and, and make sure that with your uh, staff, things will happen. And there is obviously the option that, what do I do? Do I change everything in one day? Or am I might be more patient? And obviously option B would be the one I would go for. Of course, if you have a team that is being played this way, and it's been structured to play this way, and all the signings are towards that kind of way of playing, uh, what you want to do is to be 
of course, you want to be true to your values and you want to be true to your principles. And, and that for me is very important. I mean, you know, you can lose your money, you know, the typical thing that you say, you can lose money, everything, but your values will always be there. But, but you also have to be true to, to, the, to the people that have employed you. And there is a responsibility of winning matches. Sure. So I would say probably the first thing to do is be clever, get in there, see whether you can influence and change things day by day. And in the medium term, change as, as you would like and change the club as you would like to see it. And then obviously provide a legacy for the long term. But day number one is about winning. If you are in the professional game, I mean, it is about whether we can win the next game. And if the next game can be won by playing the way they've been playing, because that's what the team has been shaped around, then that's what you have to do. You have to obviously provide that philosophy and you have to... However, I'm a great believer of my own identity, my own principles, and what I would do is day by day try to change those things, try to incorporate a couple of players, try to obviously do the coaching sessions in a different way, to try to change the environment, try to influence everyone. So in the medium term, then we can then play the way we want to play. But I think you have to be realistic in life. Yeah. Do you think, there's maybe two questions there, it maybe is a false premise, so I'll ask you first of all. George. Do you think that players are adaptable or do you think that players at the top level generally struggle to adapt to changes in shape and formation and roles within the team? Okay. And if so, how can a coach at the lower level develop players who are more adaptable and who can adapt and change as the game evolves going forwards. Okay. Um, yeah, of course there are players who, who will adapt very well and players who will struggle, like in any other industry. I mean, there is, there is um, people who are more adaptable and flexible, there are people who have more skills and, and they've um, been given more tools in a toolbox that will allow them to um, change things very quickly and understand different philosophies and different ways of playing. Do you think, that when you look at the, the, the say, take Premier League teams currently, yeah. When when pundits traditionally talk about players, yeah. do you think they maybe don't give the players enough credit, and maybe do you think the players yeah. could actually do a lot more than they're yeah. allowed? Well, obviously, I won't really talk about what all the people say about players because obviously okay. I, I, that I wouldn't know, and, and we would have to go into very specific cases and very individual people. But what I would say about the players that I believe that the players are um, obviously the most important important asset of any club, mm-hmm. and and I would say for sure that. All the players I've been lucky to coach, they've been adaptable and they've been always very receptive. People might learn in different ways, people might take a bit longer to learn different things. But again, I think it's also a challenge as a coach. So obviously, I'm not expecting to be given a job, then go there and it's like, well, the players are going to understand everything in one day, they're going to do everything perfectly if I don't really do my job properly. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we have to see it ourselves and really think, well, am I doing a good job here? Am I doing everything I can? And then, if the answer is yes, then explore other things and see whether you can change other things. But sometimes the answer will be no. So it's about you as well, going down coaching and managing, rather than just expecting the player to do everything. Sure. And thinking that the player is always in the wrong, and thinking that the player is always the one who needs to change, needs to adapt, or maybe you haven't done it yourself mm-hmm. in the first case. So having said that the player is the most important asset in the club, yes, there is a bit of everything. There is players who will adapt better than others. But I think that most of them, especially um, current players, so players that you know have um, broken into the first team in the last four or five years. Okay. I think now, in academy level, most academies are starting to to work very well, and you know they do lots of workshops around different things, and you know they teach the the players 
how to play in different formations. They teach the players um, how to play against different oppositions, so European opposition, South American, English. So I think now the players have been given different options to, to learn. And, and I think they're starting to be very clever and, and, and really good with understanding and game understanding. But of course, it also depends on the academy and it also depends on the values of the academy. But uh, in the places I've been lucky to work for, I would say that, yeah, I mean, the players are very adaptable and flexible and they're always there to, it's like, well, come on, tell me and, you know, coach me and manage me and then we'll see what we can do together. So I'm always on the player side. I'm always thinking, what can I do? You know, rather than, so the first thing as a coach or manager, my mentality is I'm going to go there and I'm going to see what I can do and I'm going to show you what I can do. And then I'll start asking you to do, you know, and to follow. But how can I ask you to do anything if I haven't really, you know, show what I can do myself? So I will always um, be very, very. Uh, I'm, I'm a perfectionist, so I will always go there into a club and and be really demanding with the players. But having already demanded a lot from myself, otherwise it's a bit hypocritic. Obviously, the interrelationship between the manager yeah. and the coaching staff and the players on the field. Yeah. There's often with professional athletes, the ego's involved. Yeah. There's um, a lot of money involved often. So, yeah. you know, potentially changing formation and dropping somebody to the bench can dramatically yeah. influence, you know, their lifestyle and things yeah. like that. There's a lot of other things going on as well. Absolutely, yeah. How do, you, how do you administer that sort of chain of command? How do you have leaders on the field? How do you maybe pick a captain? How do you decide what, um, how much influence the coaching staff have versus coming through you? Yeah. In the ideal situation, if you could go into sort of you know your own imaginary club and set it up from scratch, see the yeah. perfect model. How do you think you would maybe approach that kind of hierarchy system? Yeah, I mean, I think as long as it is healthy and as long as you know we all understand our roles and responsibilities, I think it's fine. I think it's like when you go. Sometimes we we I I feel that we over kind of think these situations and like it's like when you go into a new um, I know a new job in a restaurant let's say, but I mean, if the manager doesn't really tell you what your roles and responsibilities are, if he doesn't or she doesn't give you some direction and some guidelines, then you know I mean, you don't really know whether you're doing a good job. So I think in a club it's as simple as that, it's going there and then being very honest and, and always, always talk to the player in a way that, you know, he or she understands what you're trying to say. So when you go in there, it's like, listen, these are my expectations. These are your roles and responsibilities. And this is what I would like you to do. Right? Now, I'm going to help you. I'm going to try to be here for you. And that's my job. But this is what you need to do for me to play you. And then, and then if there is an honest um, conversation, and if they all understand what happened since day one, then of course it will be fallouts. Of course it will be issues. Because that's normal. That's, that's, that's the challenge as a manager. That's, it's managing a group of people with different needs, different perspectives, different cultures, different ways of doing. And that's the exciting bit of, of managing. But I, I always believe that if you go there very honest, and if you go like, I'm here to work, sure. I'm here to help you, I'm here to win with you, and this is what I would like you to do, then things might be easier. Of course, it will be challenges, but things might be easier. Then um, in precision, you start to assess the group, you start to see how things happen, how they develop then probably will be already someone who is more like a leader mm -hmm. and someone who's already a recognized leader within the group. That could be your captain. Okay. But then I would probably let them vote. Um, 
because it, I believe that the captain has to be that link between the dressing room and yourself. So if it is only picked by myself, is he going to be respected by the dressing room? Sure, dressing yeah, room? Right. Maybe not. Um, if it is picked by the dressing room, probably it will be respected by them because they elected that person. And then it's my challenge as a manager to try to work with that person. Now, I can be clever as a manager and in the first couple of weeks of preseason, trying to influence the group so they go towards that person who probably I've chosen, but I haven't chosen because they are going to elect him. And that's your influence, that's your emotional intelligence as a manager. And those are obviously your triggers as a manager. So I wouldn't choose the captain the first day. I would give it for another uh, probably two or three weeks in preseason. I would let the dressing room probably choose that captain. So he's an elected captain. Then I would probably honor the tradition and the culture of the club, where the, normally the second captain is the person who's been there the longest. Or, uh, that's quite important as well, to respect the, the, the culture and the traditions of a club. Yeah. So you go there and you have to embrace those things. So there are lots of things in, into account. But again, I think it's more about honesty. And I think it's more about going into the club um, and really showing the players and really showing the members of the staff that you are there to work. You are there to win with them and you are there to do things in a very honest way.